Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast community. We are so lucky to have our guest today, who is a good friend of both of ours and also somebody who has actually been involved in the podcast over the last the last months in um, a way that you don't even know. Derek Weston has been editing um, our audio for the last few months, which we are incredibly grateful for. I think Sam is especially grateful for that. Um, and it's about Amen. time that we had him on the show to say, who, who is this, this, this member of the team? Derek, of course, is much, much more than the person who edits the Food and Faith podcast. He is the Director of Programs and Volunteers for Hope Springs, a ministry for people who are living with HIV. He lives outside of Baltimore with his wife and four kids, and almost every inch of his yard has been turned into a garden. He was a Regenerate Fellow with uh, Wake Forest Divinity in 2018, and his most recent credentials, which we're excited to hear about today, is that as of what, last week, Derek? He became uh, a, as of Monday. As of Monday, today's Tuesday. That's yesterday. <laughs> he is a certified master gardener. So we are thrilled to have you on the pod today, and we are grateful for your colleagueship and friendship, and looking forward to having this conversation and sharing it with our broader community. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I, you know, I am a I'm a fan, um, as well as you know getting to work on the podcast. I, I've, I've enjoyed working on it because I enjoy the content so much. So uh, I'm glad to be here. Of course, you edit, you edit the thing. So, um, so we're going to start with geography um, and sharing a little bit about you, about the place, um, how you understand home, land, food, family, um, all of those sorts of things. And so I um, would love to have you share a little bit about, about your geography and what brings you here. Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking about this question for a long time. And when I, when I think about my geography, I have to start with Pittsburgh. Um, so I grew up in McKeesport, which is on the east side of Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, by the name, you can tell it's a, it's a port town. It's like right on the, where I grew up was right on the Monongahela River. And you could see some of the ports from when Pittsburgh was a steel town. Um, I think one of the, one of the really defining stories for me growing up is that Pittsburgh was a place when the steel industry was booming where people would have to go home in the middle of the day, like at lunchtime, and change their shirts because they were so covered in soot from the steel mills and all of the dirt and grime that was in the air. I was born in 1980, so I was born on the tail end of that. And by the time I went to college, Pittsburgh was this green, beautiful, clean air city. And I've always just kind of thought of that as sort of this amazing possibility of what we're, what we're capable of when we become um, conscious of our surroundings, when we actually start to notice things. And, you know, so, so, and, and, and just even you know, the idea of what it means to reinvent yourself. And I think Pittsburgh kind of did that, turning itself from this, this steel town that was doing incredible environmental damage to uh, more of a tech town and, and uh, really honoring the, uh, the area around it. 
So, you know, Pittsburgh is, is hilly. It is, we've got mountains everywhere. It's got rivers. It's got greenery everywhere. Um, and we do everything in our power to <laughs> escape those things, um, which, is, which is really pretty sad. So the, the town that I grew up in was a pretty, pretty rough urban area. Lived there for the first 10 years of my life. Um, it was becoming a really, really bad part of the city. Um, and then my folks moved us out into the suburbs. And, um, and again, the, the, the kind of working against nature of making very cookie cutter suburbia um, has always kind of, I've always kind of bristled against that. And yet I live in suburbia now in Baltimore. And I think that's part of why um, I have, I have uh, de-lawned, if that's a word, so yes. much of our property is because uh, I really, I really hate the cookie cutter suburbanness, and you know, getting to you know integrate more native plants and more native species into my yard has been really fun. Um, but you know, I I think about um, you know other geographies that shaped me. I lived in Portland. I lived in the Bay Area. Always really found you know kind of deep connections with nature, and always kind of found that like. Um, deep connections to my spirituality through nature um and you know whether that's through the rivers through the lakes um that that has always been sort of an important thing for me one of the things that's been a lot of what has shaped some of my interest is that like for me um even as i you know kind of went to seminary and went into ministry i've never been able to disconnect um my understanding of ourselves as agents in nature from my faith um, I went to San Francisco Theological Seminary, which is a gorgeous campus um, in, in, it's in, in, the, in the Redwoods and just beautiful. And so there was no way, you know, when you, you know, I, I, I look toward the hills from where does my help come? Like when you're, when you're studying that and you're looking at the hills and the mountains, it's really hard to not be inspired and um, not make deep connections to your faith and to the geography that surrounds you. So that's kind of always been a part of, of who I am and what my, what my spirituality looks like. I can just picture that I've been to a few conferences. Actually, I think that we first met in person at a conference. That's right. At, on that beautiful campus. That's right. Um, and I love that idea that the explicitness of the way that the land uh, shapes your theological education, I think, for many of us, it's more it's more subtle, but there's something really powerful about that being so so explicit and connected in that way. So we're recording this in the I guess from the second week of June, or we in the third week of June. I don't know when we what day it is, <laughs> but we're about third week of June. Yeah. yeah. So we're like three uh, um, three or so, so weeks out from the murder of George Floyd, and we're in the middle of um, what summer, summer terming as a, a new level of awakening to um, Black Lives Matter movement and the importance for racial justice. And um, also in the middle of, I think for many white folks, a, a um, hopefully deeper level of, of eyes and hearts and minds open to what it's like to, to be a person of color in this country. And there's a lot going on. Um, and 
something you said right before we got on the show, which is where I'd kind of love to go next, is um, how food touches on all these other justice issues, how, how justice issues are intertwined and how, um, you know, we like to use the word intersectionality and that, and that piece of it and then, or interconnected. And um, so I just would love, love to invite you to reflect on, on this moment in time and also in how there's a, there's a moment and then there's bigger movement that has been and needs to be um, around our country and our world becoming a more just and generous place. So there, I just threw like 15 yeah, options yeah. out. Go. Hey, I'm going to solve, I'm going to solve all of this. Um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing um, about Pittsburgh and, and I, I, I do deeply love Pittsburgh. Um, it is where I consider, you know, in a lot of ways is what I consider my home. But Pittsburgh is also um, one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. As an African American, um, experienced a I experienced a completely different Pittsburgh than what a lot of people experience. Um, Pittsburgh is 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 regularly on the top of list of most livable cities in the country, and that is very true if you are if you are white. If you are black, it is um, one of the things that I actually didn't realize until I moved out was that there was essentially no black middle class in Pittsburgh when I lived there. Mm. Like if you were black, you were poor. Um, and, and, and it's a city of neighborhoods, much like Baltimore is as well, um, where, where very stark lines of contrast are drawn between black and white neighborhoods. And you can tell, you, you, can, you can see across the street, you can see the division, you can see the quality of houses, you can see the the quality of like of, of life is is in um, really stark visual terms. So racial justice has always been something that's been really important for me. When I first started working in ministry, I was I was you know I was in a, a lot of conversations where uh, I worked in an organization called the Pittsburgh Project that hosted um, suburban groups to come into urban Pittsburgh to do home repair for low income, mostly black homeowners in the city of Pittsburgh. And so we had lots of conversations about racial justice. We have lots of conversation about racial inequality. And that's always been a passion of mine. And it's always been something that even as, as I went into pastoral ministry was a big focus of, of my thinking and my work. And interestingly, when I was in pastoral ministry, gardening was kind of like my, my Zen get away from it all kind mm -hmm. of thing. Gardening was my, was my put these issues aside and just put my hands in the dirt and you know find my find my peace find my connection to god well uh in the what's happened in the last few years as i've kind of gotten deeper into gardening and as uh, i've gotten deeper into learning more about our food systems one of the things that happened was recognizing how much every um <clears throat> every justice issue that I was speaking about, every justice issue that I was working on had a component of food to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, whether it's food, you know, the idea of food, um, we don't use deserts, you know, we kind of moved away from talking about food deserts and talking about food apartheid. And I really like that, that language because it, it talks about the intentionality that okay. like there are places where quality food 
is not accessible to to certain people, to people and mostly people of color. Um, so there's there's those issues. There's also you know when you talk about immigration, you're talking about the fact that a lot of the workers are part of our food system. When you talk about women's rights, you're talking about a lot of the fact that a lot of those people who are working in those systems are women who are not being paid adequately for the work that they do. Um, and, and, and all of these issues around, around justice had a food component. And so all of a sudden, as I'm gardening, it's no longer this Zen escape from my, right. from the justice issues. It's all, it's, it's all of a sudden a part of them. And, and, um, and it, it becomes this thing where I'm, I'm now thinking more intentionally about where my food comes from, how my food is dis distributed, um, how those systems are created that, that perpetuate all of these things. And that's, you know, I, I, I kind of look at what happened with my, um, kind of awakening around gardening as what's happening with a lot of, particularly my, I have, you know, I have lots of white friends and colleagues. I think it's, it's that having the, your places of peace become disturbed mm. um, and having your places of peace become uncomfortable is when you start to enter into a lot of these conversations about justice. Mm. And that's what happened with me um, it, it, around gardening and around food justice issues is that I, I started to find my, my place of, of peace really becoming a place where I was disturbed. And even, even disturbed about the fact that like not everyone has access to a space like that where right. they can just, start, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, just, just small square foot footage sorts of things. So for me, I think race is, is racism isn't going to be um, something people deal with until it becomes a personal issue for them. And sometimes that, that means expanding your, your, your racial, your, your circles, your social circles. Um, sometimes that means it becomes personal for you because of your theology. Sometimes it becomes personal for you because you just understand the interconnectedness of the world better. Um, I, I think what is different about this moment is that there has been a groundswell of people who are not directly affected by racism on a day-to-day -day basis because they're, a person, they're people of color, but there are people who are seeing this and saying, you know what, this is, this is my neighbor, this is my friend, this is my colleague, this is my coworker. And they've been saying this stuff for years and years. And uh, it's, this, this, is, this has got to change. We've got to, stop, we've got to stop having to have these conversations. Um, I also, you know, there, there's so many things going on and I, I think the, the administration doesn't help. Um, uh, and <laughs> that's, a, that's a very gentle, kind I, way to I, say that. I, I think that, I think that was, that's maybe the nicest, that's maybe the nicest thing I've said about the Trump administration. But, in, and also I think, I think seeing that we're in the middle of a global pandemic where, where people of color are already being disproportionately affected that to then add, you know, I think, I think there's, there's a sense of the additional cruelty of having these things happen when people are already trying to manage how do I, how do I live life in the midst of this global pandemic? Um, 
I think it became a breaking point for a lot of people of like, this is, this is, this is um, so much more, more egregious than it's been um, because of the circumstances that the pandemic has, has created. So I, I, am, I am cautiously hopeful about this moment, um, very cautiously because, you know, I, I also have seen that as the news cycles change, sometimes we lose energy. And, um, and I also, you know, really feel that people of faith need to be forefront in this. And it's really hard right now for a lot of faith communities that are really just thinking about how do we survive? How do we keep our doors open? How do we pay our pastor? How do we, um, how do we navigate the cultural changes that we're experiencing? So um, I, I remain cautiously optimistic. Um, I think this is, a, this, is a, this is a moment, this is an um, opportunity that we, we can't let slip by um, to do some education um, of ourselves. And you know, even for me, I, you know, as, I, as I am very much in a spot where because of my circles, I feel like I'm doing education with a lot of my white friends, but I'm also very much aware of the fact that there was a black trans woman who was beaten by black men in the midst of these protests for no reason other than the fact that she was a black trans woman and that I have my own blind spots and that we all have our own blind spots and we have to, we have to lean into that discomfort if we're, if we're going to make this the kind of society that we want it to be. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear in your story, um, and, and particularly when you say, you know, this idea of going to a safe space to kind of, to kind of get away from all this and then discovering all these issues, finding you there. I mean, it feels very much, I mean, just as I heard you talking about that, the first thing that pop, popped in my head was the story of Jonah. Um, Jonah's just trying to get away from this. He doesn't want to deal with this issue over here. Um, and I know for me, just, you know, as I heard you describe it, I mean, I, I felt like you were describing my own journey because part of the reason I ended up here talking about rural issues and food issues is because well, I'm a rural kid. So let's, let's go hang out in the comfortable spot. I'll just sort of represent and work on this while other people deal with, you know, LGBTQ issues, other pe people deal with race issues, and then to discover all of them sitting right here. Um, right. It felt very much like, and, and the way I hear you describe it, a very much a Jonah moment where we want to run away and we discover that God is still beckoning us back, um, even in our comfortable spaces. And so um, I, I, I just heard that, that biblical imagery really well. And, you know, and some of us maybe need to be swallowed by a whale and spit up on the shore, like coming to, <laughs> coming to a certain amount of reality, you know, live, talk about yeah. living in an uncomfortable space, living in that uncomfortable space for a while. And I, I share your cautious optimism, though, you know, I'll admit my own, my own radar is not all that well-tuned, you know, so my optimism, you know, at times is a little off, let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And like, you know, I, I, I think there, there, you know, there definitely is a, um, I think this is not just a Jonah moment for individuals. I think it's a Jonah moment for the church. Yeah. Like that mm -hmm. we're being the church is being called, you know, my, my wife is the pastor of a white suburban church that, um, you know, they're, they're, it's a beautiful group of people and they are, they are wrestling with these, these questions and they're wrestling with what, what do we do as people who 
as people of faith who care about these things and often feel really ill-equipped to deal with them and really ill-equipped to speak on them and 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 in some ways have you know have all the the protections that they could ask for to to opt out of these conversations but they're leaning into them um but they're leaning into them and in in, in in discomfort and mm-hmm. and i think that's 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 part of um where where you know you we ask these questions of do you have to be comfortable to do the things that God called you to do? Because if you do, then that's probably not actually the thing God called you to do. <laughs> yes, right, great. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's a Jonah moment for the church too, to really, to, to step into some places of, honestly, of, of repentance. Yep. We have to own how often the church has been at the forefront of, of reinforcing racist viewpoints and reinforcing white supremacy and reinforcing um, you know, like white flight was in a lot of ways led by the church, you know, like when, when, when uh, like a, a, a new suburb was established when a church was there. Right. You know? um, so, so we have to, so we have, so the church has to own, own that, own that piece of our, of our history um, and, and recognize that um, there's some, there's some repentance and there's some listening and there's some education that needs to happen for, for us as well. Um, and I say us, you know, like as a, as a, as a black person, I can, I can opt out of that and say, well, the black church has been due, but the black church has issues too. Um, and, and, and really like, it's that, it's that, um, that unwillingness to own all of our history and all of our story that I think um, is, is, often so detrimental to us making progress. One of the things that feels really relevant to this conversation, the Food and Faith podcast conversation, it is coming back to how our food connects us and connect with, I don't know, I think we think of that as a very like nice friendly word, right? Like, oh, we're all connected. And it's like, well, but it also connects us in, in the history, in the, in the pain, in the power dynamics, in the acts of oppression, in the exploitation of black and brown bodies, in the exploitation of poor bodies. I mean, like, right, the, that, that the connection comes with both its gifts and its liabilities, both its blessings and its curses, and that that image of you going out to the garden to, to want to be connected to God and to the earth and it seems like kind of God saying, like, yes, you are. And, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and here's how. And here's how. And, and that, that is uncomfortable. And it's also, it's where life is, right? It's where, it's where the possibility of any kind of change is, is in that place where we can be uncomfortable and acknowledge the interconnection on the many multifaceted levels, not just on the nice friendly level. Yeah. I just, um, I just finished reading Michael Tweedy's book, The Cooking Gene, which is wonderful. Uh, he's a, he's a African-American gay Jewish chef in Maryland. And he did uh, an exploration uh, sort of of his own genealogy, but also of, uh, of sort of his 
uh, food history. So, you know, doing explorations into Southern cooking. And, it's, and it was really fascinating, you know, to really understand that, like, a lot of what we understand as, quote unquote, Southern cooking has its roots in Africa. And, and we have to be able to, like, then deal with, well, you know, um, it, it's funny because at the, same, at the same time, I was watching a show um, uh, with a white chef who, who went over to Africa and, and, and basically talked about how food waves uh, from Africa came over to the South as if there had been some sort of like student exchange program. <laughs> and I was like, like, no, this happened because of slavery. This didn't happen because, because there was some like, you know, uh, visiting professor yeah. from Africa who was coming with their, with their, with their recipe book. Um, and I, and I think being able to understand and lean into, you know, I, and I think food does this in a way that's somewhat disarming that like we can talk about um, one of the things that's, that's been beautiful. Uh, this summer I've been working at a community garden because um, one of the, uh, so my work is around, my work is around HIV, people who are living with HIV, but of course HIV has, in and of itself become a very marginalized issue. And it's mostly for um, where we're seeing it continue to spread is with um, black LGBTQ folks. And so a lot of them are dealing with food insecurity. And so we're, I, I, I stumbled into, volunteered myself silly, um, in a silly way for a, a, to manage this community garden in Baltimore. Um, and as I was talking to the, so we're gonna, we're gonna grow food in this land and then we're gonna donate it to a couple of organizations and food banks and things like that. And as I was having conversations about um, what, what we're growing there, what sort of came about was like, well, we're growing sweet potatoes. It's like, well, why are we growing sweet potatoes? It's like, well, cause every culture uses sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, huh, that's really, that's fascinating. Um, of like that that there's this one food that we've kind of identified as this ubiquitous food that we all have figured out how to integrate into our cuisines, and like that's kind of a, an amazing and beautiful thing that we um, that there is there's actually this unifying thing now like how sweet potatoes got to various parts of of the world is problematic but I think we can start at the place of there's this food that we all have in common that then we kind of, we can lean into those um, less comfortable conversations about why we all have this one, this one staple in common. Um, But I, but I think, I think there's, there's so many wonderful opportunities around food to have these kinds of conversations, to talk about, um, the ways that cultural exchange, you know, cultural exchange is kind of a sanitized word in and of itself, but the ways that cultures have intersected and the ways that they've met and the ways that they have um, evolved and integrated and, and fused. And um, there's some beautiful things there, you know, there's some, there's some really hopeful things there. Um, 
but we we can't ignore the history and we can't ignore we can't ignore some of the hard things too. And I, I think we we shouldn't be able to enjoy the beautiful things without without dealing with some of the hard some of the ugly parts. Yeah. And Derek, one of the things that I've that I've loved about you, and one of the reasons why I've just so enjoyed the conversations we've been able to share, um, has been because you know you identified sort of as now you live in suburbia, kind of a thing. You know, you've, you've worked in ministry, all that sort of thing, and but now you find yourself as the as the manager for this community garden. So I would love to know a little bit more about what this community garden sort of all about. Um, maybe where it is. I mean. You know, I'm always a cheerleader for Maryland around here. So anybody who's listening from Maryland um, who might have an hour to give you a hand, that'd be great. Um, you know, and sort of sharing a little bit about yes, what that is and what your experience has been managing this thing. Because one of the things I've discovered about managing a community garden is I got into it because I like growing things and then discovered managing it has very little to do with growing things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ain't that the truth? Yes. And so I'm, I would just love, love to hear more about this project that you're involved with. Yeah, so, so there's two pieces there. Um, so the first, the community garden. The community garden is uh, actually in a Baltimore neighborhood. Uh, it's on, in Television Hill. Um, and it is, um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, one of the wonderful things that I think is happening in a lot of places in the city. It's, um, it's an abandoned uh, baseball field that has been oh. turned into a community garden. And so it's, it's a pretty sizable plot of land. Um, and, uh, you know, personally, I, I know that Sammy won't agree with this. I personally uh, prefer that gardening happening in a place than baseball happen in a place. Um, but <laughs> Two against one on this call. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> um, All right. But, <laughs> we'll hash this out later. Right, that, was, that, was, that, was a, that was a cheap shot. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think, I think, What's happening there, and it's really interesting as I've, as I've gotten to talk to some of the people around there, is that a lot of people are, um, a lot of people jumped on the plots this year because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it's their first year. And they're, they're just discovering gardening. And they're just kind of like, well, this is, this is pretty amazing. Um, and you know, I think it's been really, it's been really fun to have those kind of interactions. Um, the community garden piece in and of itself has been a, an exercise in volunteer coordination, uh, uh, which is one of my skills, but not one of my joys. Um, it's, <laughs> I love it. Absolutely um, yeah. love it. But at the same time, um, you know, I, my, my most faithful volunteer right now has been a woman who has brought her kids down and brought her family down to work in the, in the lot. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's the joy of, of kids learning new things about where their food comes from. Um, you know, and this, this, this garden has, has everything. Like we have snakes, we have, we have mantises, we have, you know, we have a whole biology lesson happening here in this, in this, um, in this, in this plot of land. Um, and I, and also, you know, being able to have that conversation, particularly with young people. And I, I actually, I took my family out as well. And you know, before we started having the conversation with them about like this, what we're doing here is planting food for people who might not have access to food the way that we do. 
and and using that as a teaching opportunity that and seeing that as a teaching opportunity us as adults these justice conversations but when you when you break it down to the level of kids of like well why don't people have access to food why don't people why don't you know why are these certain things happening you know like it becomes really simple Mm -hmm. and in a way that like kind of should make adults feel ashamed um like it's it's really shameful that we haven't learned to share our things when we tell our kids to share our things now the piece about the suburbs um is also interesting because um (laughs) there is you know there's this unspoken unwritten suburban social contract that I am breaking on a fairly regular basis Uh-oh. with the way that I maintain my lawn. <laughs> if you have land, land is such a privilege. Like, and, and, and we, we really, um, you know, so part of, part of what I'm trying to do is just a little bit of leading by example of that, that lawns are such a waste. Lawns are such a, abomination <laughs> I, that, I know that seems like a that seems like a strong word but it's actually what i feel like i think we have a responsibility to be doing to be doing more than just having these these neatly manicured beds of chemicals that are that are you know lining streets and 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 you know acres and acres of pro- miles and miles of property um, I, I really do feel like that is, that is a that is a, a huge issue of privilege and a huge issue of of stewardship that really never gets talked about. And you know, I I feel like um, you know to the extent that my little garden can be a little act of resistance there, I, I want it to be. Yeah. Mm. So. Um, Derek, one of the things that I really appreciate in many of the conversations and multiple different circles that, um, well, these days we find each other on Zoom screens, but (laughs) circles, (laughs) um, is your commitment to the food and faith movement or the Christian food movement, whatever, whatever name you want to call it as a whole, and your vision and commitment to how telling the stories of people working at these intersections um, is, is an important piece of the work. And, um, I would love to hear more about your thoughts on that. Like, why, why is that important? Why do you edit this podcast? Like we're just saying it's not glamorous. It's not fun. Um, but, and I don't think it's just cause you're a good friend. You are a very good friend, but I don't think that that is, is the only reason. I think there's something deeper there. And, um, and then I'd also would love to for you to give a sneak peek to our listeners about one of the projects that you and I and some others are collaborating on. I've always appreciated storytelling and the power of story. Um, My undergrad was in film and I've always appreciated, and my undergrad was in film and through that degree and through that study, um, I realized that you you really can shape and convey so much in in narrative, so much in um, story form that is completely different than when you're just giving people 
facts and when you're just giving people information. Um, you know, it's, I think as people of faith, we, we know that kind of intuitively that what we have in our, in our sacred texts are um, a series of stories, a series of, of narratives that are woven together. But they're also a, a series, I think one of the things that theological education um, does for us is it reminds us that it's, uh, it's a series of narratives that have, that have agendas and have messages that they, that they want to convey. And we don't always like to think about scripture that way, but like there were, there were agendas. There were authors who were trying to communicate to a particular group of people. Um, and I, you know, I, you know, to, to be a little bit of a heretic, I've always kind of hated the idea of a closed canon. Um, I kind of feel like we should continue to be making scripture because God is still moving and God is still working. And so we should continue to be telling stories of what God is doing. And that's part of what I love about the podcast is that we're telling the stories in very contextualized ways of what God is doing in, in specific places. I think that's what's one of the things that I really love about um, food and faith uh, conversations is that they're very contextual. And, and being able to understand that like God is doing something in a particular place, the particular group of people in a particular circumstance. And that's, that circumstance could be, could be um, the inner city, that, that circumstance could be out in the country, that circumstance could be even in the suburbs. And <laughs> even um, the suburbs, even, even the suburbs, even the godless suburbs. No. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I think there's, there's a, um, there's a beauty because, because there's really, um, because everyone, and I, and I, and I also, you know, not to, to fanboy here, but I, I love that you begin the podcast with asking people to describe their geographies because it, it, it gives, um, it, it, it adds to the idea of contextualizing our piece of God's story. Mm. Um, our part in God's story. Um, so, so I think it's, it's important that we're using whatever tools, whatever media we have to, to be telling stories and to be telling our own stories and telling our part in God's story. Because I think that's, I think that's what we're doing. I think that's what, always what we're doing is we're telling our, our piece in God's story. So um, podcast is how, how we're doing that right now. And we've done that with you know some of us have been writing about it some of us have written great books very recently um about uh this 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 story and, and that's you anna <laughs> oh, <that's me. laughs> oh. yes we're still selling books here by anna's book <laughs> it's, it's fabulous and I, I had the i had the privilege of being uh one of the advanced readers um it was a excellent book and I, and, I, and I think your book highlights so well the beauty of of telling god's story in in the context of where you were and what you were trying to do it's it's, it's really remarkable in that way um so we've done that you know we've done that in podcasts we've done that in books and we've written articles and and pieces like that and um you know, it was interesting about a year ago a little over a year ago we were talking about you know we really you know want to wish that we were getting these stories out and more of these stories and in more different ways. And, um, and, and, 
in that moment, um, you know, uh, I, I think it was, I think it was God who kind of, uh, kind of poked me in the side and said, man, if only where there was someone here who had a film degree, uh, I was like, oh, right, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I love movies. I love making films. Um, and so, and then I reached out to a filmmaker friend of mine, Jason Chestnut, who's very talented and does a lot of great work. Um, so for the last year, there's been a, there's been a small group of us who have been brainstorming, planning. So I'm really excited. I'm really excited to tell these stories. I'm really excited. And a lot of, a lot of the stories we're telling are, are, are stories of people who have been on the podcast. Um, but we're going to, we're going to get to see them. You're going to see their faces and you're going to see the places and the particular geographies that they were. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited with the group of people that um, are are working on this. I'm really excited about sort of the collaborative spirit, and uh, we are making this up as we go. We have <laughs> we have no idea what we're doing. Um, none of us like we we have tangential experience with working on a documentary, but none of us knows what we're doing. Um, and I actually think that's part of the fun of it. Um, but one of the things I've always loved, uh, even through undergrad and my film studies degree, one of the things I love about filmmaking is that it is one of the most collaborative art forms there is. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's one of the things that I've just really enjoyed about this process. And um, I'm excited, you know, that hopefully in the fall we'll have, in the summer we'll have a little something to show, and in the fall we'll have a longer something to show, and hopefully sometime next year we'll have a really good feature like something to show it's it's so exciting and um your shepherding of the vision has been and the bringing together all the collaborators and i'm excited mm. pretty good and we'll certainly podcast listeners you will hear more about this <laughs> on the pod and on our social media and, um, we will keep you keep you updated Every single master gardener I've ever known has been one of those sweet old ladies that want to grow that wants to grow geraniums. And yep. so I'm like, you talked about being prophetic, blowing up your lawn, please, dear God, blow up this whole master gardener thing. Like, let's have some fun with it. So, it's, it, so I was, the interesting thing is I was, I was one of the younger people in my group. I was the youngest man by far. Um, like the only the only people who were around my age were women, um, and then like the other guys were the other uh, five guys who were in the in the course all retired. Mm. Um, so I, I I do think that there there is um, there is kind of a revolution that needs to happen of like this is this has largely been a space of retirees um, who who are. And that's why, you know, um, gosh, you know, we had a whole, we had a whole section on turf grass maintenance and on lawn maintenance. I mean, oh, I oh. was, I was, I was like, okay, I just, I just, gotta, I just gotta power through this. <laughs> like, this is, this is Don't like, forget where the money comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I understand. I understand, and I understand that like they're they're probably going to people be people. Do the first thing when they when they find out that I'm a master gardener are going to ask me questions about their lawn, but they're not going to like my answer. 
Um, but you know, I do think it's I do think it's a space where, like, particularly as more young people, you know, right now are you know starting gardens and things like this. You know, I'm hopeful that more young people um, will move into the space. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, I want <laughs> like there's a there, there's enough of us doing this that we've got to be getting close to a critical mass where if enough of us get into this at some point they gotta be like all right actually the clientele that are showing up want to talk about different things maybe we need yeah. to well, reevaluate what and, this curriculum looks like and and listen i mean if, and if you want to talk about i mean since we're recording I mean, if you want to talk about the place where where the church could be like a, a, a place of relevance when you have these young people who are like all of a sudden like thinking about gardening and all of a sudden thinking about ways that they can be more responsible stewardship like for the church to harness that energy and 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 to bring that in and again to have tangible real live uh, examples to our to our our theological stories and metaphors that that the garden like generously provides for us um, I mean, that's that's a place where, you know, I think that's the other piece about the film is that like, that's a place when I, you know, when, when we were, when we were at the Food and Faith um, conference this year, you know, seeing that like, Keep and Till skews pretty young for a church, you know, it was actually, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yep. and there's, there's opportunities, but I do think that, um, I do think that's a place where as we, uh, as we think about those people who are missing from the kind of missing generation of the church, um, this is a place of this is a place of interest. This is a place of energy. This is a place of passion um, that the church could be speaking into. Yeah. Well, and in practical ways too, right? So I mean, we see like I mean, you know, our mutual friend uh, Heber there in Baltimore, like um, Pleasant Hope, and I think the Black Church Food Security Network are doing like webinars on gardening right like not like practical skills and the good news garden movement the episcopal church is doing and you know at front naria like they're doing skill-based like yes framed as faith as an act of faith but it's like how do you actually do this there are skills yeah Yeah. i want like that's just what i want every i think every church could do that as well as every church so just to like build on the lawn thing like oh man so lawns i have issue with church lawns oh my gosh don't even get me started i mean that (laughs) official abomination like official abomination especially when it takes like money and water being in the los angeles and the drought like the water that is used on lawns yeah but so like every church lawn yeah garden and every church could be an an, a center of learning about how to not how to grow our food, but also to pulling those those threads of justice, right? Pulling the like yeah. the threads of oh, and who has the food and who doesn't, and and what kinds of food are we growing, and are those do those match our neighborhood? And, and there's just there's so many ways that it can be integral yeah. to who we are as a church. And a webinar a few weeks ago about um about doing church outdoors and i was kind of saying like at first like why are we doing this right now like this is this feels so trivial compared to all the issues in the world and um and i was just reminded of that interconnected piece 
of you know interconnected justice and then specifically the, one of the things that came up in the conversation for me is that when we go out on the lawns of our church even if we're going out on them for worship because we can't safely worship indoors right now if we're out on the lawn of our church even if it's just for an hour on sunday morning we suddenly see our community in a different way whether our community is a church that you know good suburban church that like aided white flight or whether our churches are still in urban areas where people, a lot of people are driving to church. They don't live in that neighborhood or if rural, like it doesn't like suddenly our context of our church building changes and think if not only we were out there on Sunday morning for an hour, but if during the week and in the garden and in doing this thing that we can invite people into and say, Hey, this is actually your church and your neighborhood and your community. And, yeah. and a lot of people are doing that and it's beautiful. And a lot more of us could a do that. A lot more could be. We, there's so much land out there that is just lawn. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it breaks my heart. Yeah. yeah. So we bring it to the end of the pod. Um, and Derek, you have, uh, we always ask, about hope and you have given plenty um hope in reimagining lawns hope in um <laughs> perpetual perpetual growth um you know and so you you have just been expounding hope for us all um but want to ask what brings you hope um and as as you know we say all the time not the easy hope that's happy and fun but the hope that looks through what we're enduring and sees a better world ahead so what gives you hope i'm so, kind of thinking uh, that we should call this belly of the whale hope <laughs> right i'm not opposed to that belly like, of the whale hope right? yeah from now <laughs> on we're just gonna say what is your belly of the whale hope <laughs> finally i've con i've contributed to this podcast in some way i'm so excited <laughs> yeah yeah but your your first contribution Sam. yeah that's right um, you know so i actually actually want to tell a story um because <laughs> yes um so this this community garden that I've inherited, there was a woman who was kind of instrumental in getting this started and she's since moved to Florida, but she continues her involvement with this uh, community garden by, she starts the sweet potato slips um, and she starts them growing and then she sends them up or, you know, in, in pre-COVID days, she used to drive them up herself when she was kind of moving the family. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, I got this box full <laughs> of, uh, of hundreds and hundreds of sweet potato slips. And at that point, I didn't really have like my, my volunteers lined up. So I'm, you know, I'm making dashes out to the garden to get as many in as I can. And I, like I said, I took my, took my kids out and uh, got whatever volunteers that I could, and and we got a lot of them in. Like there are literally hundreds of of sweet potatoes in, in this field, but we didn't get to all of them. And when you leave something like sweet potatoes sitting in water, eventually the roots start to rot, and um, so we lost quite a bit of our sweet potatoes to root rot. And as I as I was sorting through sweet potatoes this weekend, just kind of figuring out like really actually kind of despairing because so many of them had rotten. One of the things that I started to notice was that there were places of rot, but then there were places of young new growth where new roots started to 
mm. pop out of, of these sweet potatoes. Um, and so I had to like cut off the rotten part, mm. but then I had these new young roots for these sweet potatoes and I planted them, you know, from the, those, where those new young roots are. And I think that's what gives me hope right now is that we're in this process of pruning off some of the rotten parts of, of our society. Mm. And there are young people, there are uh, people who are really, you know, my, my own kids, you know, who are, are being awakened to the realities of, of this world and they're, they're excited about ideas of justice and they're excited about ideas of equity. And I see those new young roots coming out all over the place. That's, that's what our streets have been filled with mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks are these new young roots that are coming out and saying, yeah, there's been this rot and it's, and it's, and it's rotten to the core, but we can, we can cut off those rotten parts and the new young roots can be the establishment of what is to come. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, that's my hope. That's, that's really where I, you know, and, and, and part of that is dealing with the discomfort as I turned 40 this year that I might not be a part of the new young roots anymore. But leading into learning learning new things from, from the generation that's coming after me and, um, and, and, and taking on their language and taking on their uh, expertise and their lived experience. Um, so yeah, that's mm. where, I, where I find hope. That's beautiful. I'm just picturing the sweet potatoes and the roots <laughs> and, that, and that just that there's something so powerful in those those analogies or metaphors when God teaches us through the tangible sacramental things of, yeah. of this earth and that God's message of hope, you know, it, everyone knows I love to talk about compost. Like, and now you're talking about rot, you know, like, <laughs> right. That there's, there's, there's gospel in a rotten sweet potato root because something new is coming out of that. So Oh, man, I can't. I can't believe we didn't even get into compost today. Like, man, there's don't do it. Don't Derek, do it. <laughs> okay, Derek, it's a date. You and me and the podcast all compost. Sam, you can go talk uh, with Karen about pigs. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But we're just going to talk about compost the whole episode. I, I, what are you, com- what are you am, composting if it's not manure? I'm, I'm so here. confused. Okay, okay. <laughs> I am here for. I am here for the all compost episode. <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, these brand new roots and the garden teaches us in such wonderful ways, doesn't it? That like you have these new roots. And as I hear you talking, I'm thinking we have to nourish those roots. And, you know, there is so much new growth that is happening. And I'm reminded about, you know, the parable Jesus tells about, you know, the seeds falling on different kinds of soil, you know, and making sure that we nourish this. But at the same time, you know, one of the things the garden teaches me is I'll walk down, you know, a row of cucumbers and just be like, well, that guy's dead, you know, and just let it there. And what do you know, in like two weeks, there it is, and it's flowering and it's going. And there's such unbelievable resiliency yeah. built into nature. Yeah. Um, and just as I hear you talking, you know, just thinking about, yes, we need to nourish all this, but there is resiliency in, in the things that are growing. And two things can be true at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and so, so, yeah, so thank you for that, really. 
So if people want to find out, you know, what you're doing with all the sweet potato slips that you have <laughs> or um, your work in the world, are there um, places people can follow you? Sure. Um, you can all, all the social media. Um, I'm, I'm there. I'm active. Um, Derek L. Weston at, at Derek L. Weston on Twitter, at DL Weston on Instagram, Derek Weston on Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. And you're yeah. an excellent follow, by the way. <laughs> like there are some it's like okay i have an account you're actually a really good follow so i i i, I love social media it, it it is it is a double-edged sword but i i do love it well i love following you on social media and i always get inspired to do more garden things and so it's a good thing well thank you derek so much for being on the show for editing the show for being a friend and collaborator and for continuing to tell your story and the stories of God. It's a gift. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston, and music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.